And now the after show with two hosts who review everything and the one network who had no choice but to air their coverage. It's AfterBuzz TV's Arrested Development. Stay tuned. You're tuning into the destination for TV superfan discussion, AfterBuzz TV. And now, let the buzz begin. And does it is such so also is such as it unto you. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. That is the voice of Jeffrey Crane Graham, screenwriter, comedy enthusiast, and of course, AfterBuzz TV talent booker. Yes, what's up, guys? Jeff Graham here, Phil. I'm so excited to pop the Arrested Development cherry here at AfterBuzz TV. Well, your AfterBuzz, your Arrested. Have we covered this? We have covered season four. Shame on me. Um, I am Phil Svitek, Chief Operating Officer here at AfterBuzz TV, and we did indeed cover season four of Arrested Development back in the day, not the remix, the The, OG OG season four, the fifteen movies that Netflix put out about Arrested Development. Correct. So much to talk about, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is, of course, now a Netflix series, and as such, we're going to air it in various parts, mm-hmm. as we'll call them. Uh, we'll give you sort of tonight background context of the show. We'll give you our opinions of the show. We're going to treat it, even though we're going to do it in parts, we're going to do it as if you've seen all eight episodes. Yes. Um, and rather than do episode by episode, we're going to do parts based on characters. Mm-hmm. So today's focus will be Joe, Michael, and Lucille. Next time, we'll talk about maybe Lindsay and Tobias because, of course, they're they're a nice happy family. Yes, a happy family. Very traditional. <laughs> of course. And then we'll talk about George Sr., George Michael, and Buster. So that gives you a little bit of a preview. We'll also have some various special segments throughout each part. We might do some running gags of, of the characters and so on and so forth. As on, I say, I, I, and as it is such, as so also as such is it unto you. That's right. I grew up Protestant, so I that I relate to that on a visceral level. So we'll we'll try to uh, very much give you as much in depth coverage as we can, both in terms of our opinions, but also the reasons why, and then contextually beyond the show. Yes, and Phil, you introduced the two of us, but our producer Brianna has also seen the season. So if you guys hear the voice, the kind voice of a. Uh, birthday girl in the Indeed. booth. That is our producer, Brianna, who's also watched the season. So, Bri, hop in whenever you have thoughts. Hey, guys. I will chime in when I feel right. Great. So, you know, I, I, I normally we start with overall thoughts, mm-hmm. and we will do that, but then we'll also have to kind of contextualize things, because in order to get into this season in particular, there's a lot that goes into it. But yes. without further ado... Uh, you've been given your spoiler warnings. You you now know how we're going to do this. Jeff, your overall thoughts on this half season so far. Yes. So I am a longtime Arrested Development fan. I feel like as a comedy fan, this show is so important for me just in terms of like, I feel like when I saw this season back when I was like, I guess in middle school um, with the original run, it kind of blew my mind. And I was just amazed. I think Mitchell Hurwitz, I also covered Lady Dynamite here, which is another show he created. I think he's like a very special breed of comedy writer. So because the original three seasons hold such a high pedestal in terms of my tastes for both television and comedy, I feel like no matter what, the show will never quite reach those heights for me. I mean, I'd love to have myself proved wrong. I thought this was a good season. I thought there was a lot that I really liked. I do think in terms of like hanging out with the Bluths and like seeing the characters I know and love, 
I feel like I got a lot of that. I feel like I recognized the characters. It was fun to be with them again. But I feel like structurally the show is leaning into all of the wrong instincts. And I'll get into more specifics as to what I mean by that. But I feel like the nature of this show is that it's a network comedy. I think it's working best when episodes are fairly self-contained. And I feel like Mitchell Hurwitz and the writers are leaning into and trying to take advantage of a seasonal format. And I don't think that the bones of Arrested Development work best in that context. So my complaints have to do with pacing and narrative and story. But I do think the characters are about as good as they've ever been. And I was laughing a lot. Good. Yeah, good. I think there's things in season five that are fun, but I think it suffers from having to continue the story arcs of season four. Yes. And that to me is the biggest misstep. Once it, whenever it separates itself from that, it's fun. Mm -hmm. And I also, you know, as much as we love Ron Howard's narration, (laughs) I really think that sometimes it can rely on it too much to tell certain jokes and it's supposed to accentuate what's there, not. Beat it into the ground. Beat it into the ground or just uh, substitute it completely. Yeah. Uh, Bree, what about your thoughts? I enjoyed the season, but I also agree with you guys that there are times where it just runs a little bit low. I feel like with, I know we're going to get into it later with other characters, but with Isla Fisher's character, she's been around for two seasons now and we're still not concluded with her storyline, which seems very long. Mm -hmm. And same with, um, uh, Maybe and John Michael, we or George, George Michael, Michael, sorry, John Michael, something my friend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Shout but, out to John Michael if you're watching. <laughs> but they just keep bringing this joke back in, and I would like to see them if they're going to bring it in. Bring like this season had a little bit more of a fresh take, but like even more so, like really get in there because the writers are so good, and I know they can go there. Mm-hmm. So why not? Yeah. Well, here's. here's So we've gotten the overall thoughts. Here's a little bit of context. One of the interesting things is Hurwitz back in the day said after season three that the story of the Bluths was done, which I find very interesting because then years later, you know, partly because of popular demand. I mean, we know Arrested Development has grown into kind of a very big behemoth as far as comedy fans. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're in essence, you could be defined by, if you love Arrested Development, the type of comedy you like. Fair. And, you know, Netflix presented this opportunity, and so there there he goes making a season four, uh, which... You know, what was groundbreaking in the sense that that a show could be brought back. Yeah, this was kind of one of the first shows to do that, wasn't it? Like, resurrected... Yeah, I mean, first off, it was one of the first... Not literally, but one of the first few uh, Netflix shows. Yes. Um, and then, yeah, it certainly resurrected a series. It was definitely, yeah, it was definitely the first Netflix show to have already existed as a previous property. And I can't think, it's funny because now it seems like shows are being revived from the dead all the time. We have Will and Grace, well, Roseanne, RIP, except mm-hmm. even that's coming back from having been twice killed. So Roseanne was canceled in the 90s, brought back this year, canceled again, and is being brought back in a different way in the fall. So it feels so common now. But yeah, season four was sort of, it was sort of a revolutionary decision on the part of Netflix. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of look at it, they also did it with Full House, yes. which is kind of more of a spinoff series. Um, Boy Meets World turned into Girl Meets World. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can. there's a certain discussion to be had. Like, maybe there there should have been a tonal switch and have a kind of semi-spin-off rather than fully focusing on the, the Bluths, like, the you know, what we've known and loved. But also, what you guys are mentioning, all those shows are old shows being brought back. This one's more fairly new being brought back. Yeah. 
that's a good point. That's true. 90s versus 2000s. Yeah. Um, And I know we haven't quite got into season five coverage, but I do want to talk about the remix of season four, which I haven't seen all the way through. But I've seen enough, and it's there's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, I, before I get your opinions, what what I'm I'm uh, paraphrasing what what Mitchell Hurwitz said was, you know, what I realize now is that in essence we gave you all the ingredients of a sandwich, gave you the meat, we gave you the cheese, the lettuce, the tomato, the bun, but we never actually made you the sandwich that was the original season four. Now with the season four remix, we've made a sandwich. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> hey, what do you what do you think of that? B, what's your stance on the two seasons and so on and so forth? Well, you mentioned Mitchell Hurwitz mentioned that season three, the blues are done, the show's not coming back. I have to suspect part of it might have been when Netflix comes to you with a giant check, you might want to say yes to that. I don't, I don't know, but I. I'm sure the money was appealing for him. And it's a creative challenge. It's so a creative I get, challenge, So yeah. there's that side of it, too. Um, I thought season four was a B-, and I thought the season four remix was a B-. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I So we went lateral. Yeah, I think it was a lateral move. I think it's very interesting, just as, like, I think when you work at this network, you not only view TV as a fan, but also kind of as a producer and almost, you know, like, a historian like when you're a cultural critic you're looking at it sociologically as well so i'm super interested in the fact that netflix is just like do whatever you want mitch hurwitz if you want to re-edit this season and re-release it on netflix you can i think like historically it's very interesting to me i'm not sure the season was massively improved by the remix um as you know in season four they weren't filming it as an ensemble they had to piecemeal together all the talent and shoot in a way where uh characters kind of got their own individual features which is i think the worst version of the show because i think the show was working best when all the characters are in a room bickering and even with this remix i don't think we got that ensemble feel they tried but it still kind of felt like this piecemeal assembly of um like a shadow of what the show i think should be for me there's a lot of great youtube videos out there by all means check them out that site one of the first episodes, 22-minute episode, usually on average anywhere between 8 minutes and 10 minutes of each episode is spent on narration. <laughs> it's too much. That's And, you know, that's not including the credits and the intro, so, of course, then that's pretty much half your episode. Yeah, it's too much. It's I mean, the narration is such an essential part of the show. Um, and it's almost like, you know, like Ron Howard feels like a character on the show. Like they use him in very specific ways. They'll use him to make in jokes about the show or even in jokes about Ron Howard's universe outside of Arrested Development. I like that stuff. But I think because the show has been going on for as long as it has and because Mitchell Hurwitz is so brilliant, sometimes the show leans on wit and intelligence almost at the expense of comedy. Like, I feel like we'll lose jokes because the smart, quote-unquote, version of a joke or the... It's almost like the intellectualized version of this comedy trumps what might be pure laughs. And I think the narration sometimes is kind of, like, eking into that territory a little bit. Well, the narration is supposed to set up what is, present us with the characters, a show, and then tell us how it's not them, you know? And we always knew, but it helps just to undermine them. Yeah. And really... Because even now, especially like with season four and season five, Michael has kind of been the straight character, but now he's he, he he's not as uh, black and white as he used to be. He's right. very much in the gray area, and so 
at, at the least you would expect the narrator to to offer that perspective and yeah it's just a little too much I, I don't need him to be like okay then he walked down the street then he did right. this then he did this like if you'll notice here michael is breathing oh he just breathed out he breathed back in like it's just so much ron howard god bless him indeed but all right let's um without further ado let's let's start diving into season five we've given enough enough context oh the last thing i'll say uh i do encourage you guys to in the comments section or over social media let us know what you do think of season four because i think it yeah. does help set up this especially if you if you're a new fan to rest development the remix is what you get where at and the old 15 episode structure is you have to find it in Netflix's like trailers and bonus material. They hit it. Yes. But it's still available. It is. Really interesting. Um, all right. Without further ado, <laughs> let's talk about the show. The after show that doesn't talk about the show. It's we're being t- Ron Howard right now, is what we're doing. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. So let's, let's start with Michael. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, in terms of his plot lines, you know, we're we're getting his son and kind of the rebel storyline again. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, he's trying to keep the family together. In doing that, he uses Buster as a pawn, and and there's a search for Lucille too. Which that's the biggest thing as far as um, from past season to this season is Lucille too. Yep. But let's start with the son uh, because right off the bat, all these things that we're talking about as far as over narration, um, it, it, we we. We open up and we get to meet Buster because he wakes up and then it, it ties his son in via a scuba backstory <laughs> all to tell a joke about Buster. Right. And the scuba thing came back kind of, I will say to me, this first episode was the weakest of the season, which that's a problem, I think. And if you're a TV writer, like, I think, like, in a 10-episode season, you hope episode four is, like, maybe the weakest. Or, But to come out with 10 minutes of narration straight, I was very worried. I was like, if this is the new season, we're in trouble. And luckily, I think the season got dramatically better each episode and ended pretty strong. But, yeah, this was a very interesting way to bring us back into the world of the Bluths. It kind of recapped a lot. And, in fact, it recapped a lot with Michael in particular. Yes, uh, we 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 followed him uh, going to break up with break up with Rebel, and then find, getting hit in the face from his from George Michael, which was a big <laughs> point of contention where we left off season four. And f- frustrating for me as a fan of the show because I don't buy that dynamic ever existing between Michael and George Michael. To me, like their relationship is the heart of the show. So when the writers kind of um, shied away from that, like that core solid morality center of morality. I kind of got a little lost. I don't know. I, I I was I'm bummed. I was and in continually bummed by Michael and George Michael not being like a sweet father and son relationship. Okay. Personally, well, so I mean, at, at the crux of them is lies and a girl. Yes, you know, it, it oftentimes the lies in this case are about the girl. Right. So you know. We can certainly track the show, but like as, as as an overall reaction to this, I know you said you didn't love the relationship, but as far as almost like a tit for tat, 
you know, um, something happens, then then Michael reacts, then then uh, George Michael reacts to Michael reacting. Yeah, I mean, it was funny. I will say, I was laughing a lot at Michael and George Michael, especially more this season than last season. I think they did a better job of making it funny this season. I think the ciao bella stuff was pretty funny whenever that would come up. Um, but yeah, I just like I didn't totally recognize Michael, and I guess that's part of it. Is this is like. Michael at his worst. I just kind of think to compensate for that, it would have been nice to have another grounded character. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if we ha- we've had that the last two seasons. Ron yeah. Howard, maybe? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, you, you sort of look back on it and think, Michael certainly tried to go out and date. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I want, I want George Michael, and he's well within his rights to date. And I think Rebel Wilson, at the end of the day, or... Um, Rebel. Rebel Wilson is an actual person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Rebel Wilson. That'd be interesting if she was in the show. Oh, my God. Uh, anyway, he's entitled to date as well now that he's kind of more of age and so right. forth and, and finding his own confidence. So I'm all well and good there. But we've never seen – I mean, Michael, when it came to dating, he's always been wishy-washy, but not to this point. And I don't, I don't know how to quite pinpoint it, what the exact word is, but – I just, uh, for the past, you know, whenever whenever he dated anyone, it was always George Michael first. Yes. Remember right. with the publicist uh, back in season one, I believe? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was a point of contention. She's like, you know, she said, like, everything's about your son, everything's about your son, and they got very upset with her and dumped her. Right. For sure. That's what's so weird about it is not only is it weird to see Michael and George Michael competing over um, a girl, but, like, I always feel like there's been this undertone of whoever Michael marries is also, like, by proxy, a maternal figure to George Michael. And the, all the stuff about um, Michael's late wife was, like, kind of thematically important in the first three seasons. So to not only throw all of that away, but actually have George Michael and Michael competing for someone, it just feels weird. I just, I don't recognize it as uh, the show. Even though I find it funny, I just feel like, I can't, as a fan of Arrested Development, like buy into it as someone who loved the original three seasons, personally. Yeah. I mean, what I do buy is everyone just... Because no one ever talks in this family for real. Right. Uh, certainly not <laughs> truthful. Uh, you know, we, we can go over... Michael has his own lies. Uh, George Michael has George Maharis and, and <laughs> Fake Block and all that. Um so, so what I did appreciate was when the moments, everything's just being misinterpreted. So if, by way of example, when Michael does go to the Howard party, it's because it, it, it's, it's, it's because of um, wanting to get the rights. And then, of course, George Michael misinterprets that. Right. And it leads to a whole Mexican, what I'll call a Mexican standoff. A Mexican not, standoff. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And at least the show is handling it farcically, like a series of... Um, a comedy of errors, I guess, if we want to quote the bard. Um, but yeah, I I think because the core is George Michael and Michael competing for someone, even though it's played in a funny way and it's played through mistakes and farcical flubs, I just have trouble buying into that as a premise. There, I actually have a quote from Allie Pape, who writes for Vulture, and this is her quote that I think summarizes pretty well how I feel about this. She says, This has never been a show you watch for good-hearted family feelings, but it has run on a certain kind of live-and-let-live affection between characters. Think of Tobias and Lindsay's many earnest attempts to keep their shambling marriage together, or Michael's paternal affection for Buster. The Bluths were originally predicated on the Bushes, who concealed their misbehavior with mannered waspiness. 
this. But as they've transitioned into Trump analogs, the interplay has become increasingly aggressive, crude, and desperate. It's a really interesting analysis. And I kind of get that of like, if we're talking about entitled conservative people, yeah, I like the idea of the original Bluths being the Trumps, where it's like, maybe they're out of touch, but it's in a way that feels kind of innocent. Whereas now I feel like the Trumpian Bluths are out of touch in a way that feels kind of vindictive and maybe more calculated. And I sort of miss the ignorant, like the ignorant entitlement of the original family. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's also like the show might just want to evolve. So I can't take that away from the writers. It might, and it should and could. But again, there's a right way to do it and someone a wrong way. I mean, granted, when you look at movies, uh, there's a whole discussion currently about, you know, what fans want versus how things play out. Mm. Uh, In particular, you can look at what happened with The Last Jedi um, certainly Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom kind of divides people that way. Solo even, right? Uh, Solo for sure, which is Ron Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, if uh, there's a great parody of uh, Star Wars and Ron Howard narrating as Arrested Development. <laughs> Watch it. It's good. We'll tweet it out. Uh, but we digress. Um, so, yes, I, I, you know, I, I, I see that as far as them, and I, I like... I like the cliffhanger that we actually do end up in because George Michael ultimately says, I want to tell my dad the truth. And <laughs> Michael trying to be this character that is just so noble and good. And we've seen time and time again that his noble thoughts have gotten him into trouble. Um, this time he's like, yeah, no, we gotta, we, we're going to tell the truth from now on. The photos, me and maybe. <laughs> Which is the photo is evidence that uh, Lucille and Oscar, you know, that Lucille too is is alive, alive essentially, right? Which which has been the crux of uh, the situation, which we'll talk more when we get into Buster. But um, the the rug is again pulled out from Michael's feet. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. <laughs> so, what, what did you think of as far as like how they finally wrapped that up? I thought it was smart. I will say the general feeling I've had with season four and five is like, I don't, I don't exactly know what's going on. Like, I feel like I've sort of had trouble, like, like tracking narratively what's actually happening in the show. Like, I feel like the first 10 minutes of the first episode of season five, again, we're dedicated to Ron Howard trying to summarize concisely what happened in season four. But I'm like, if it's, if this is a network comedy show, At least, like, if it used to be a network comedy show, and you need 10 minutes of narration to even catch the audience up as to what happened in the previous season, something feels like, there feels like a bit of an identity crisis, like, helming the show. So, as much as I, like, want to have answers and, like, well-informed answers to questions about plot, I feel like my general MO with the show was kind of like, wait, what's... Why are they at the Lake Cottage now? Okay, Lucille's dating. Oh, wait, no. Lucille 2 is dead. Why are they in Mexico? Like, I just kind of felt like... Yeah, well, it's... it's um, even, if, even if they structured it as uh, eight, eight episode kind of film, like, it's just like eight part film, essentially. Yeah. Um, it still has to have a, a pace and a flow. Um, but even if, you know... In, I, I would argue that 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 would have been a mistake, but um, you look at any series, even on Netflix, 
because you can binge it, nonetheless, each episode sort of ends with a cliffhanger right. or something, or, you know, there's a story within a story that's told in it episode by episode, going yes. back to that idea of self-contained episodes. And I think this just essentially ends after a certain runtime and then continues on. Right. And even then, it's just like, wait, why are all of a sudden, are we here? Totally. I Yeah, that's what I miss about the old seasons is because it was written for network, each episode had a theme and like, a, yeah, a self-contained story. And you could you could point to an episode, and even if you were confused, like maybe if the Ace story was serialized and it had to do with An Young and the acquisition of the Blues estate, like that was a arc in season two, there would be a B plot where Buster's trying to figure out how to ride a bike or something like that, and it would end, and the plots would converge, and we'd come away with some backwards morality tale, and like you could point to that and be like, okay, clearly the writers were trying to talk about fathers and sons in this episode, or. Like, I think of the episode where Buster and his mom are kind of not getting along and, you know, Buster has that tirade where everything is bleeped out. But that episode's about, like, trying to distance yourself from your mother. Like, I feel like you could point to themes in each of these old episodes, and I feel like the elegance of that tightness, Netflix does not lend itself to that model. Or the writers aren't pursuing that anymore, and that's what I miss about the show. Well, speaking of when you look at how Michael treats Buster in this part of the season... He very much treats him like like Lucille would, mm-hmm. where he's a pawn. He's always, to me, cared about Buster. Now, he's known Buster's not the sharpest tool in the shed. Right. We all know that, but nonetheless, there was heart to it. Now, to send him off as a pawn um, to, to save himself and to save the family, that's not something that uh, uh, Michael's known to do. Right. And I don't know if... It's okay that he does, but we haven't gotten him to that point naturally. Exactly. We we don't understand why. It's more of a, it's not a because of this, Michael's doing this. It's, oh, he has to. And then Mm -hmm. he does this. Right. The story requires, in general, I felt like the new version of Arrested Development is so story reliant. And yeah, I just don't feel like that um, behooves the show. It's interesting. I feel like this show has always demanded intelligence to watch, but it used to be that you have to be smart to track the callbacks or the jokes or to follow someone's thread of thought to like find the humor in what's happening. Like that was how smart viewers were rewarded. Whereas I feel like the intelligence now demands that you track this really complicated plot. And for me, like that's not how I view TV. Like I feel like that's I'm how I view comedy. A comedy, exactly. So I feel frustrated that like. I'm not lapsing in terms of recognizing the jokes. I'm lapsing in terms of just, like, literally what's happening on the show. Like, that's how I've kind of thought the last two seasons a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... By the way, it sounds like a whole murder mystery just explaining the Buster plot. Right. He, he goes to jail. Then we try to get him out, but by accident we get out Barry, the mm-hmm. lawyer, because he's also in jail. And then we work on getting Buster out, um, who has evidence. And, and then, again, that... You know, that ties up the Michael the George Michael storyline because that evidence that we thought we had is actual real evidence, but it's fake because it's not actually Lucille too. Right. This is not sound if, like, if if that sound like trigonometry. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like a comedy show. Like I think if you were to summarize season one of this show, you'd be like, oh, that sounds like a comedy. Whereas if you were to summarize the plot of season five, you might assume, yeah, it's a murder mystery or like a new David Fincher film, which. Could be, funny could be funny if you satirize it, but the, but the whole family has to be kind of going in on it at right. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the way Michael treats uh, Buster? 
I agree with you. It doesn't feel like Michael. I mean, I love Buster, and I like putting Buster in positions that he's totally unqualified to handle. But hey, it, brother. <laughs> hey, brother. But it feels weird that Michael would be, yeah, pawning Buster off or, like, that he'd be the impetus for Buster's issues. It's so funny when Buster struggles at the hand of Lucille one, but I don't like the idea that Buster's struggling at the hand of Michael. Yeah, because now there's no one really rooting for him at the end of the day. Right. And, you know, it's unfortunate because uh, by that point, Buster is the fourth child. All bets were off. Everyone had given up on everything. You know, the, obviously the, the brothers and the sisters had their hands full. Right. Um, do, trying to just get, get through their own stuff. And, uh, yeah, they just stopped caring as far as Lucy, you know. I mean, she loved him, but in all the wrong ways. Right. And for all the wrong reasons, you could argue. Yeah, that, that too. Yeah, so I I think we're on the same page with Michael. Like, I think Jason Bateman's always doing a good job at this character. He had funny moments, but again, he, his strengths lie, and Jason Bateman in general as an actor is funniest when he's playing the straight man, when he's disillusioned by the world around him. So when he's a piece of that vortex, when he's a part of the chaos of the blues, I think we lose some of the funny dryness that made Michael such a wonderful character in the first three seasons. Yeah, and you could, uh, what's that? He's in an alphabet movie, uh, Spelling Bee, mm. right? I think that's the name of the movie. If not, it's about a spelling bee and where Jason Bateman actually participates in a spelling bee. I don't think it's as strong because he's not the straight character. Whereas right. you look at Horrible Bosses and Horrible Bosses 2, he very much is that kind of misinformed, but nonetheless um, good-hearted straight man. It's interesting because even in his dramatic roles, he plays the same thing. So if you've seen Ozark, which is also on Netflix, it's a drama. It's... Uh, violent, more Breaking Bad type drama, but even in that, he plays like a suburban dad who gets caught up in the world of drugs. So in the same way that he's a suburban dad who gets caught up in the world of fraud and real estate corruption in this comedy, it's the same. You could argue that it's just Michael if he were in a dramatic, dark world. Mm -hmm. So I think that's Jason Bateman at his strengths, and I don't think the writers have leaned into that this season. No, not at all. Um, so let's kind of one of the one of the big things is the search for Lucille too, and that becomes his driving force. And you know, he initially forgets that he he could have avoided a lot of this, um, but through no fault of his own, last season he got a forget me now pill from from Job, and now he's he's kind of respends um, the earlier part of the season in do, kind of retracing his steps, uh-huh. um, and then obviously he. All this kind of comes to fruition, but um, this starts to tie nicely into Lucille too. Because one one of the things that excited me the most, and we haven't quite captured uh, at the end of season three, Lucille being the real mastermind of this whole family dynamic and really keeping control of everything, being the puppeteer. Lucille one or Lucille two? Lucille one. Yeah. Uh, and as far as that goes. Uh, I would have expected her to be more of a puppeteer on this, and, and to a degree she was, um, but in a evil sort of way. I mean, uh, yeah. number one, they kept hidden from Michael. Don't tell Michael about many things, but the cottage specifically. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, it becomes a tit for tat between Lucille and Michael in terms of searching for Lucille, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the good news is. Lucille has always been my favorite character on the show. I think Jessica Walters a genius. I think this is such a good role for her. Actually, right now, a lot of Emmy analysts are saying that like a, a nomination for her isn't unlikely this season. Like We might see it in the fall, which I think would be cool, especially because she's had a pretty tough 
PR season with this show. Um, so anytime she's on screen, I'm happy. And I will say, even though we have some issues with maybe how she was drawn this season, she feels the most like the Lucille I knew 10 years ago to me. Like, this is the character I, like, most clearly recognize as someone I've known for 10 years because of the old seasons. So, in general, when she's on screen, I was here for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're asking, though, how did I feel about the subplot where she and Michael are at odds? Yeah, I mean, l- l- the fact that let's let's take the cottage, you yeah. know, as a, as a starting point. You know, Michael learns about it, and then Lucille just kind of almost writes him off of like, yeah, we just didn't tell you. Yeah. I, the thing is, though, Lucille's always been a monster, so, like, I, it didn't feel like something she wouldn't do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what was her famous quote? Not this season, oh, which, it, uh, but, uh, you know, if you, it, it essentially it was like, hey, if I give you insults and you can take them, uh, then uh, you can take anyone's insults. But the, the Ron Howard joke was no one would ever come close to any <laughs> of her insults. Yeah, I mean, like, some of the stuff... Like between even her and her daughter in the first season, where they're going at it, is just some of the funniest, some of the funniest shade I've ever seen on TV. And Jessica Walter plays it with such precision. She's so good, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but you, and in a sense, one of the things that I'm bummed about is that finding out about the family cottage, in a sense, could have just been an entire episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big thing when you you know we have three. Now four seasons leading to it of of Michael with his late wife, and that was a big thing. And now we just kind of gloss over it of like he discovers this by, a by accident, uh, and all of a sudden it's like oh we just didn't tell Michael. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean I guess at the same time though that does feel like the old show. Like Michael would get left out of stuff. I mean it even, does, but not his reaction. Yeah, you're right. But that's a Michael problem. So I'm <laughs> fine with the Lucille of it all. But again, like. These are the issues I've I see and have seen with Michael for the last two seasons. Mm-hmm. It doesn't I don't recognize him. Okay, so let's kind of shift gears then into um, Lucille as far as her controlling all this. She she wants to get the government deal. Uh, part of how she'll get that is by having Lindsay win this election. Uh, of course, she's manipulating her husband George Senior. Whom is having estrogen problems, so she doesn't really care for his sexual conduct. <laughs> Let's just say she's unsatisfied. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What, what, what do you think of her as being this puppeteer? And certainly now that, like, her knowing that Lucille too is gone and kind of using that in essence to her advantage via Lindsay. I f- it felt right. It felt very arrested development. This stuff felt more in line with what I know the show to be. Um, I feel like, honestly, she could be doing anything, and as long as, you know, we're seeing these one-liners and these biting cuts of not only her family, but the other people around her, I'm on board for it. Um, I did really, really enjoy sort of the discovery of her sexuality with Dermot Mulroney's character. I thought that was pretty funny. So, yeah, I mean, anytime Lucille's on screen, I'm I'm laughing. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite moments was kind of the Mexican standoff version of it. Yes. Because, you know, Barry calls Michael in this elaborate setup. And, of course, Barry being Barry, like, I mean, just just conf- essentially confirm it via something. <laughs> and then Michael's kind of half confirming it, thinking it is a lie. But then Barry comes in and is like, oh, wait, it was real? <laughs> yes, it was real. <laughs> yeah, this was good. Uh, yeah, this was good. I I was here for it. 
I, sure. I, I am here for it too. And uh, I love one of the, again, it gets, once they start to eliminate the other stuff that they had to hold on to, at the end, again, as I said, George Michael and Michael, where they came to simultaneously with George Sr. and Lucille kind of being like, wait, the land's in Mexico? <laughs> yeah. Okay, the, the, we can't win this election whatsoever. And just just out of necessity, without any hesitation, doing a 180. Yeah. Yeah, this was good. I mean, like, this was definitely one of the more solid components of the season for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, any particular uh, lines or moments, scenes, perhaps, that stood out as far as Lucille was concerned? Well, this was spoken indirectly, but George Michael and Maybe are trying to remember kind of Gangi's phrases about life. And um, they're doing a couple inversions of common stock phrases, like... Never forgive, but always forget. Was that the one? Like, mm-hmm. certain, like, inversions like that. Then the last one they land on is, they should take all the rapists and the murderers and put them all together on an island, and all the murderers can be raped, and all the rapists can be murdered, until you only have either two rapists or you're down to one raped murderer. But who cares about him? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, like, that stuff that's just so stupidly specific and weird that I love. And, yeah, anytime Lucille's being shady, which is 90% of the time, that's... One of my favorite things about this show, and what's you buy into that creed like that is that is probably one of her true mantras in life, right? <laughs> yeah, she's just always been so out of touch, without even realizing it. The one my roommate and I were even laughing. This is old Lucille, but the the Plimpies they would go to they went to this restaurant called Plimpies, and the uh, hostess goes plate or platter, and Lucille I, says, I. I will not hear the question and I will not... I don't understand the question and I will not respond to it. Yeah. She's <laughs> like the most Lucille response ever. Plater platter. Plater platter. Welcome to Plimpies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she, you know, of course, a lot of great stuff there. She never looks a waiter in the eye. It's <laughs> The show is at its greatest when it's adhering to the, extri- the intricacies of each character. Right. And true to them rather than adhering to like we got to get to this place yeah when it's so plot driven i don't really i'm not really along for the ride and what's so interesting too quickly um part of the appeal of this season was mitchell Hurwitz promised us an ensemble show you know in season four it was a piecemeal version of character like individual character driven stories so we didn't have many scenes where the booths were together in the hotel in the penthouse just hanging out um we didn't really get much of that either this season. I feel like we got a lot of one-on-one scenes, a lot of partner scenes. We got the the only time was like at Lucille's place yes. when, when the family comes together to 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 film whatever it is, you know, for for Lucy for Lindsay's campaign. And that was to me the funniest scene of the season. That was when I was like, "This is the show that I love." So I really hope if there's a season six, which I will say for all the complaints I have. Even, a mediocre season of Arrested Development is still one of the best comedies on TV. Like, if we sound like we're being hard on the show, it's because there's such a high bar for this show. So if there's a season six, I will watch season six, happily. But I hope they lean into the ensemble components of this show, because that's what makes the show the best version of the show. Yeah. It's like a baseball player who you know can hit a crap ton of home runs, who's just having an off couple of games. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yes. All right, uh, so we've talked about all those. Uh, again, there's a lot more to discuss, but we'll sort of do that once we talk about the different uh, characters and see it from their perspective. Yeah, let's move on to Job, who we sort of recycle the plot line of him becoming president again of yes. the company. This time, it's for the Ostero Bluth Company instead mm-hmm. of just the Bluth Company. Um, but 
all that kind of is a backdrop to his biggest point is that he's a closet gay <laughs> and is wondering what's happening with Tony Wonder. So, Brianna, I would love you to hop in because I know you actually were buying into this Job-Tony Wonder subplot. The main thing that I can buy into with Job and this this plot that they're doing of him being gay is just because he's always been so alpha male. Yeah. And often, you know, when people are very compensating for certain things, it turns out to be for something. And for him, that's why it makes sense to me. It's like for him, it's he's compensating for this part of him that he doesn't understand. And I don't know. It, it might not even be that he's completely gay because like right now it's just Tony Wonder. Yeah, that's true. It could be that he's just like, maybe he's bisexual or maybe there's something else going on. But I love seeing them kind of take him down that notch to some place that he's not comfortable being and have to become okay with it. So you felt like you enjoyed the Job subplot of this season overall? Yeah, I I enjoy whenever Job gets put in a position where he's not entirely comfortable, especially in a family like his. Mm-hmm. Because I feel that Job is always, I mean, we give Buster a lot of flack for being not loved, but Job, I feel like, is the really non-loved child of all three of them. He's the, you know, his mom doesn't care about him, his dad right. doesn't care about him, his brothers don't care about him. He, he doesn't have a significant other. He doesn't have... Well, he does have kids, but, you know, not in his life. Right. So he's kind of the black sheep to me of everybody. I agree. That's a good analysis. Yeah, and when it comes to Tony Wonder, I mean, the one thing maybe they could have gone stronger on was the fact, like, they have a bond over magic, right? (laughs) And uh, illusions, Phil. Illusions. Illusions. A trick is something... A whore does for money. <laughs> yes. Uh, but we digress. So, yeah, so I, I, I could have understood it if they played it a little bit stronger into that side. And you know what? On the surface, I guess I didn't necessarily not like it, but they just spent so much time literalizing, which I know isn't a real word, but the joke. It might be. Of him, of him being closeted by now owning a closet store. <laughs> I actually thought that stuff was kind of funny. It was a lot. I think maybe we could have used 10 minutes less of it. Because really, there wasn't much more to Job's story this season than, like, turns out he's gay. Like, I feel like that was, like, definitely the engine behind every Job scene we saw. But I thought, to me, like, it's the Arrested Development I like of, like, wordplay and, like, situations lived out in literal ways when they're actually hiding something else. Like, all of the Lonnie Beard stuff... And, like, all of the fake boob jokes I thought were pretty funny. and um, Also, just the entire time of him and his father in Mexico <laughs> making excuses as to why not to hook up with women. Yeah, for both of them. That, that stuff was funny. So, as much as it was, like, a lot, I think it maybe could have been edited some, but I was enjoying it. I thought it was one of some of the stronger components of season five for me. Yeah, and I think... See, now in talking about it, I I feel like the difficulty that the show has is that I don't necessarily mind the changes, but I feel like, in essence, you have to kind of gradually change one character at a time, then move on. Yep. And it's a lot of changes fast because, you know, uh, whether it's Job with with his father, um, but then more specifically, Job, in one way or another, has always been relied on to do the dirty work of the family. And so in this sense, he gets tasked to go after Kitty and get the rights back. (laughs) And, you know, I get that he's going through this thing, but nonetheless, he's always shown that he can do this stuff and do it well. 
And, you know, he, he does take a certain amount of pride with that. That's why, again, he is the president of the Ostero Bluth Company. Right. And, you know, even in that sense, no matter what his headspace is, he bought the top floor because it's, of course, the top floor. Right. And as president, he needs the best space. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's what I have problems with. Like, maybe it isn't the fact that he's gay. And by the way, I have nothing against gay people and anything like that. It's just strictly it's it's a little too much too fast. And I and mm-hmm. I and, you know, if he's I would expect him to come through with the kitty thing. Yeah, at least. Well, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the show might have been reaching for a joke at the expense of authentic character development. Mm hmm. But the closet stuff was funny to me. <laughs> the actual closet closet stuff? Yeah. Even the fact that the trick was all predicated around like a closet joke. It's like so silly, but also so smart. I think like that silly smart dichotomy is what the show is so good at. Mm-hmm. And so for the most part, I was amused. I was digging this. Yeah. I, uh, because because of the ambiguity sort of involved um the tony wonder thing could have been slightly stronger although i did like it because tony wonder is trying to get him to literally come out of the closet i enjoyed that um but uh and and obviously tony does have affections for job but it it kind of left somewhat mean-spirited yeah yeah and that's you know it's one of those things I can laugh at Job, but no one else. You, you know what I mean? Like he—he's the—he's the kid that you want to protect, and not only I can make fun of him, but no one else dare shall make fun yeah, of him, he's like lest your, he suffer my wrath. He's like your brother. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I'm though with Job is such a d bag though that I'm I'm okay to watch him suffer because mm-hmm. he's so like all this stuff with Anne, even though it's hilarious, is just so kind of like quietly dark and like he is a bad dude. I, I think of, in terms of the Bluths. And this is a family of terrible people. I would argue Job might be like the worst. Well, I, I would love put him. Lucille, but then I, Job's pretty high up there. He's yeah. like two or three. I, I, I'll put it there. Maybe Lindsay might go higher depending on the day. Yeah, there's some bad Lindsay stuff too. Those Bluths, man. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. But as far as his storyline, yeah, as, as we mentioned, there's not a whole lot going on there, unfortunately. I thought the Kitty stuff was funny. I will always laugh at Job and Kitty's dynamics, and I thought the fact that they got locked in, like, a space set at Imagine Entertainment was funny. I thought that played well. Mm-hmm. And it's funny to watch Will Arnett play scared. Like, I think in general, he plays that very funny, so. Yeah, I did appreciate that it obviously calls back to the glasses on, no off, hair <laughs> up, no down. Down. Have we tried? <laughs> so that will... well, What is interesting is, I will say, to Bree's point, if you position Job as someone who's gay, that stuff be takes on a different shade of uh dynamic it takes on a different dynamic a little bit but the, you, you remember how they used to unlock these sort of gems and these hidden plot lines like remember when um when buster finds out that oscar is his real father yeah. and it just kept being or is he yeah and it kept being this this thing that that we as an audience were ahead of because of the narration yes but the character had yet to catch up, even yes. though other characters were quite literally dropping hints. A lot of the incest stuff was played so well with the narration because we would learn about family 
<laughs> it's so weird how incest is just like such a pervasive theme on this show. But we would learn about like accidental family sex before the family did, which like was always hilarious. Wait, so we're not cousins? <laughs> but are they? <laughs> or are they? <laughs> or are they? Yeah. Kissing cousins indeed. <laughs> but we will not be talking about them today. All right. So in essence, we've we've covered all the things that that are worth covering but by all means uh please in the comments section if there's something you want to expand upon if there's something we didn't quite hit by all means we encourage you to to discuss it with us there and please we'll do. read it and i will be so there as such as it is on to you as it is on to us whatever the damn quote will be because i'll never get it right yes all right so the other parts of our show we're not quite done yet uh, for today's part one, we want to talk about press surrounding this show. Yeah. This season carried with it a lot of interesting weight that other shows don't carry with it. Not only because it has such a storied history and people know the booth so well, but obviously Jeffrey Tambor now carries in this Me Too era and what what people call what people call a post-Weinstein world, a lot came out about Jeffrey Tambor. First, unrelated to the show. So on Transparent, a number of both emotional and sexual assault accusations were leveled against him by production assistants on the show. Um, So Jeffrey Tambor was carrying that into the season. What was most interesting to me, though, was I felt like until the Arrested Development stuff broke, it didn't seem to be that much of an issue compared with other actors. It is interesting to see how in the world of accusations and Me Too moments, some actors seem to get away with it more than others. And I actually thought the fallout around the accusations on Transparent were less intense than I expected them to be. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you felt that way or not, but... Um, because I don't watch Transparent necessarily. It wasn't in my vision. Yes. you know, um, It's just interesting because with House of Cards... Granted, it was related to production. No, it wasn't. When the news broke with Kevin Spacey, cancel him from the show, he's gone. When this news broke with Jeffrey Tambor, I feel like Netflix tried to kind of keep it quiet and just let him, you know, quietly promote season five. That was not what happened, though. During season five promotion, the New York Times sat down with the Bluth family in what's been considered a very kind of strange interview um, consistent with what people are saying is a world of male privilege associated with Hollywood and specifically on-set production. We have a clip of the interview that Brianna's going to play right now, so let's listen. It's a very amorphous process, this, this sort it's of Jason Bateman. that we yeah. do, you know, making a fake life. It's a weird thing, and it is a breeding ground for um, atypical behavior, and certain people have certain processes. That doesn't mean it's acceptable, and no, the point I, I, is that things are changing, I, I and people need to respect each other differently. I, I just realized in this conversation that that's I Jessica. have to let go of the, being angry at him. He never crossed the line on our show with any, you know, sexual whatever. Verbally, yes, he harassed me, but I he did apologize. I have to let it go, and I I have to give you a chance to to you know for us to be friends again. Absolutely. But it, it's it's hard because honestly, Jason says this happens all the time. In like almost sixty years of working, I've never had anybody yell at me like that on a set, and it's hard to to deal with it. But I'm I'm over it now. I just let it go right here for the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't give it up for anybody else. <laughs> That's uh. 
at least she tries to make a joke. I know. It's it's interesting. I mean, I it was a little harder for me to watch this show kind of with all of that coming into the season. I don't know. Do you feel like the press surrounding the show affected your ability to enjoy it? Uh, I would be lying if I said yes, simply for the fact that that the show itself has already enough problems. Yeah. Uh, that I don't need anything too, too kind of convoluted anyway. Um, I give Jessica a lot of credit for what she actually said in that moment that I have to move past this, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and taking sort of power for herself. Right. Um, but yeah, as far as the show, um, I always try to look at it, but you know, there's the art itself. I mean, I, it, it's tough. I mean, plenty of artists artists are not perfect humans right and you know uh certainly michael jackson was not a perfect human and yet i think his music stands the test of time um but again that doesn't mean i'll glorify the individual right and it's it's unfortunate in that way and i think what's becoming more prominent now is uh we're not going to separate the two and um you know because now uh, the the process is a lot more um what would you call it? Uh, the process is much more kind of out there mm-hmm. as part and parcel of the art. Yeah, and I don't think that's a bad thing either. Um, and we, you know, we're kind of judging it on those terms. It's more, much more like exposed, kind of. Is that what you mean, or like atypical? Uh, no, I mean it, it's just different, right? I mean, you know, uh, look at back in the day, like to make a movie was so hard, and, and no one really understood the process. Now. Mm-hmm. You can watch a YouTube video and understand how gotcha. completely a movie's made from start to finish. And so, you know, the curtain's been pulled back and we're, we're able to see into it. And as such, I think, you know, you could look at it as good or bad, but I just look at it as different. And, and we're judging now the process in addition to the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, from that standpoint, why wouldn't you want a good, healthy working environment? Right, exactly. It's all, I mean, I think these moments are very, very important for this industry to elevate itself to an ethical standard that it deserves to be. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I clearly this family, both within the show and Offset, is carrying some interesting baggage. And I, I'd be lying if I said it didn't affect my ability to watch the show. I'll try to say that in a more straightforward way. It was a little harder for me to, like enjoy jeffrey tambor's performance sort of in light of what was said and i don't know whether or not that's fair it's just how i felt what is interesting though is i do think he was the least featured character of this season yeah and i think the the subtlety of the joke was that um you know they were trying to emasculate him which is kind of like a tie back to transparent but it's like you you have to know that about him then be if you ideally saw transparent then that would even make stronger sense but yeah it's the humor is maybe too layered i'd be really interested for people in the comments to let us know their thoughts um just because yeah are you are you able to enjoy the show outside of the press surrounding it or do you feel like the press around the show carried into your experience watching it i'd be curious to hear just because like i feel like this is a question all of us are asking right now yeah, I mean, again, as far as, as as far as the outcome of everything, I think because everyone looks to Hollywood and, you know, we have such legends and icons, uh, I'm not honestly calling Jeffrey Tambor that, nor mm-hmm. am I calling him not that, but I'm just saying in general, you know, this industry is glamorized oftentimes, and I think 
you know, A, if we clean up this, then it can help clean up whether it's Wall Street, whether it's politics, uh, nursing, um, you know, lawyers, whatever, like right. every industry. Um, but again, I, 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 I would urge everyone, you know, there's still a way to view it, like knowing all the the Hurwitz kind of behind the scenes and what he talks about. That's just more of me than being able to look back upon it and see how everything's made. But nonetheless, I hope, I mean, no one's completely unbiased when they know certain information. Right. But, you know, knowing what he, like, when he talks about season four and the original one and making a sandwich and how he gave us all the ingredients, and now with the season four remix, he's given us the sandwich. It's like, okay, but you didn't. (laughs) Yeah, not for me at least. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's interesting. You know, all this surrounds a show that I, I love. I used to love and I still love. So I, I'm excited to keep talking about this. I'm excited to get into some Buster. I love George Michael. We also, we have yet to talk about some of these other cameos, these guest appearances, some running gags. So, Which we'll definitely, you know, we'll, we'll, yes. that's why this is part one of, of a few. So we're going to yes. get to everything. Next next week we talk about the fume case. So. Oh, great. So that'll be part two, the fume case, and, and additional stuff kind of surrounding it, like we are talking about the uh, the running jokes and things like that. And by the way, you know, as we go ep- as we go week to week, by all means, in the comments section, we encourage you guys to, to write in and, and help form this for us. I will be there. I love the YouTube comments, especially with the rest of development, because I feel like I'm always discovering something about this show. So... And also, that doesn't mean you shouldn't and couldn't leave a comment over on the Apple podcast side of things. We love our audio listeners just the same. Yes. And speaking of YouTube, guys, I do want to let you know our network is pushing to increase our subscriptions. And honestly, it helps you more than you realize. It does help the network if you guys subscribe. But listen up. Our network produces after shows for nearly all your favorite TV shows from dramas, reality TV, sci-fi, and more. There's no network that works harder to serve television fans. But again, we need your help. We're asking that you would please subscribe to one or more of our YouTube channels because by subscribing to our channel, YouTube will actually suggest content that's tailor-made for you and you will help AfterBuzz continue to grow. And if you're worried about pesky notifications, don't be because those are optional. I know personally I hate notifications, but subscribing doesn't affect your notifications if you subscribe in a specific way. So notifications are optional. It will only help you. So hit that subscribe button now for this channel and check out our other YouTube channels as well. Let us know if you did in the comments because we'll shout you out on air. But guys, for now, thanks for being the best fans, seriously, and for helping us be the ESPN of TV talk. Hit that subscribe button right now. That's right. And hopefully we've we've covered at least enough to get your appetite satiated for this week. As mentioned, we will certainly be talking about a lot. Um, all the various cameos, Steve Holt, mm. uh, Tony Wonder, Stan Sitwell, Kitty, and... And, uh, of course, there we got definitely new celebrities, uh, you know, all that to talk about. So, uh, we've been talking, and unlike Lottie Dottie Da, <laughs> we don't want to overstay our welcome. Yes. So, we're going we're gonna to head out for this week, but happy birthday to Bree in the booth. On behalf of Jeffrey Crane Graham, what's, where can people interact? Yes, if you guys are interested in connecting with me, you can do that on Twitter at Jeffrey C. Graham. Also, just so you guys know, I host a show on Friday. It's called The Unproduced Table Read on our sister network, The Popcorn Talk. We're reading a comedy tomorrow that has some tonal similarities to Arrested Development. So you should definitely tune in. That'll be 10 a.m. on The Popcorn Talk. I'm at Phil Svitek, and we'll see you next time for part two of Arrested Development, The After Show. Bye. 
from executive producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Ciao. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.